Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, I am excited and apprehensive to be back in Hamilton Road Presbyterian Church. This was a, uh, a place of great blessing, but also a, a scary place for me. I, I'm glad you didn't put me in the pulpit. I, I tell you why, when people ask me the question, what, what was one of the most embarrassing moments in your life in that pulpit? I worked with this godly and lovable man, David Burke. He was my boss, great guy. He had this gift of spontaneity. On any occasion, he would have something to say without a lot of preparation. In fact, one person in the church said to me once, Dr. Burke's a wonderful minister. He can stand up and speak without thinking. (laughs) But even when you were with him in the pulpit, he was spontaneous. He would suddenly turn to you as the young assistant and say, why don't you do the next prayer? Or, why don't you do the children's spot? On one occasion, he handed me the announcements and said, Trevor, you do the, the announcements. So I began, and there they were in his handwritten scroll. And it was the usual notices and intimations about what was going on, straightforward enough. And then there was the name of a woman with, I think it was 90 beside it. And because of the size of the church, people were dying every week. So I announced with great seriousness and sobriety the passing on of this lady at the ripe old age of 90. Well, of course, she wasn't dead. She was sitting in front of me, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. It was her 90th birthday. Fortunately, that lovely lady had a great sense of humor. I went to apologize to her. She, in fact, couldn't wait to get back to Abbeyfield to tell all her friends that her death had been publicly announced in church. It is, it is lovely to be back with you. Uh, in terms of what we're going to look at over this week, I, I, we're going to look at um, the Apostle John, the old Apostle's last will and testament. There are three letters. We're just going to look at the first one. If you would like to open your Bibles at 1 John. Uh, in Luke and Church, because we had people from all sorts of backgrounds, who, some of them who are not familiar with the Scriptures, I will have at this point to tell them what page it was on. All I can say to you, if you get to the book of the Revelation and move, move back, you'll find it pretty quickly. To First John. The problem that John was facing was that in, in Ephesus, where he had pastoral responsibility, there was a group of really hyper-super spiritual people They were the ones who claimed to really know God. They had the knowledge. Through some form of initiation, they reckoned they had an encounter with the divine, and they had something that other people didn't have. What was present, of course, was what we've come to know as Gnosticism. But what we have here in Ephesus was in its early stages. It was just experimental. It was embryonic. And that's why we call it 
proto-Gnosticism. It was one of the greatest challenges to the Christian church and still is, really reached its zenith in the second century. It was a problem. It is still a problem for us today. Uh, we call it proto-Gnosticism because you can recognize that something like New Age, for example, uh, really reached its, its, its zenith in the 1990s and through to the new millennium. But its first experimental stage was about the 1970s. Some of you remember from, from the musical Hair, the song when the moon is in the seventh heaven and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. This is the dawning of the age. You can almost sing it. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. That's proto-New Age. We are confronted with it today. It is a view of life, certainly in the first century, where the material world was essentially inherently bad. Anything you could touch or handle or see or taste, it was perverse, it was, it was evil. And, and so the Gnostic reckoned that everybody who had the seed of divine within them, when it was released through this process of initiation, you would encounter the divine and you would know God. Well, I, I said on Saturday night, I can't believe I'm living in the same island that I began my ministry in 40 years ago. This is a post-Christian, post-modern, eclectic society. Even more in the Republic than in Northern Ireland, there is still an extraordinary level of God consciousness, which expresses itself in, in people constantly saying to me, I wish I had a euro or even a pound, although the pound is dropping in value, I want to add to you. I wish I had a euro for everyone who said to me, you know, I, I'm not very religious, but I am spiritual. There, there is that it, it almost eclectic sense that in this secular society we can have a bit of this and a bit of that, and a bit of the other, so that the actress, Halle Berry, she said, I believe in God, but I'm not sure if it's Buddha or Allah or Jehovah. In Newsweek, there was this article describing this phenomenon, which said, searching for a Holy Spirit, young people are openly passionate about religion but insist on having it their own ways. Religion can be somewhat like a meal from a smorgasbord or a salad bar. Bits and pieces from various faiths can be bundled together, even if they contradict one another. Teens might cobble together bits of several faiths, a little Buddhist meditation, a Roman Catholic ritual, whatever mixture appeals at the time. That's our experience. Well, for the Apostle John, his nemesis, his primary opponent in the church in Ephesus was a guy called Corinthus. The argument was that the eternal Christ, this is their thesis, the eternal Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism, at that moment when the Spirit of God came and anointed him, but left him at his death. 
And this is repeated right through to the second century, so that in one of the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Peter, Jesus on the cross is crying, my power, my power, why have you forsaken me? You see, it's based on the thesis that humanity, human flesh, the material world in which we live is inherently, essentially, we would say philosophically, ontologically evil in its very being. And therefore, it is impossible for the ineffable God to take upon himself this broken humanity. So, so Jesus may appear to be a man, he may look like a man, he may behave like a man, but he is not really a man. Well, it is in that context I, I want you to read with me 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It is out of this that John writes in these terms. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the father and with his son in jesus christ we write this to make our joy complete well if you look at any commentary on on first john they will tell you that this first paragraph is what they call a grammatical tangle there's not a verb until the third verse the, the translators had to add verbs to try and make sense for us, but what we grasp as at the core of what John is saying is this, that that which is from the beginning, the word of life was with the Father, the eternal Christ. And as you hear that, I hope you hear the echoes of the preamble to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, these proto-gnostics, as we are calling them, would have accepted that. That was not an issue for them. But what John is adamant to introduce, that this divine one who has come among us is in flesh and blood. That's why he writes, we heard with our ears, we saw with our eyes, and then this is really the climax of what his thesis is, we touched with our hands. Now, now the word for touch is not just brushing aside someone. It, it, it's actually like a blind person in the dark, holding on, grabbing with, with, with intensity. This is real flesh and blood. It has been the foundational belief of the Christian faith from the beginning that there was no special humanity created in the womb of Mary for us. 
bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, our broken, weak, fallen humanity. He took to him self for us and for our salvation. Now, I want to try and demonstrate to you the relevance of this. This is so important for us. This is at the very heart of the gospel, we believe. Because Gnosticism will be expressed in different cultures, in different ways, and many of you who are missionaries can bear testimony to this as how you have observed it. Today, one of the phenomena you will find in the Western world, and certainly within the Republic of Ireland, is that spirituality is enough as long as you're pious and you're spiritual and you believe in something divine, and it's great. Uh, and in a postmodern relativistic world where it's politically incorrect to suggest that someone is, holds what is true and some people hold what is false, this is very acceptable. I, I once received a letter from Jean Kennedy Smith, that's the, the sister of John F. Kennedy, asking when she was ambassador in in the, in, in the Republic, the U.S. ambassador, if I would take part in, in an event for the 4th of July in her home. She asked if I would pray, provided I didn't mention the name of Jesus. Interesting. She wanted a sort of bit of spirituality. But for us who believe, if the eternal, ineffable God has become flesh and blood among us, it changes everything. Nothing can ever be the same. It is the framework within which we understand all of reality. I do get concerned, secondly, that often among those of us who are evangelical, we are almost as super-spiritual in our thinking as as the Gnostics, so otherworldly. Even how we articulate and communicate our faith, it, it seems we read the Gospels, or understand the Gospels, and read the Bible as if it begins in Genesis 3, the sin. It ends with Revelation 20 in the judgment, and Jesus dies in between in order for us to escape the judgment, and that's it, that's the Gospel. Well, in fact, the Bible begins with Genesis 1 and 2. <laughs> with the creation of a world that is staggeringly beautiful. So that which is material is said by God constantly in this passage to be good. The plants, it's good. The fish, it's good. The animals, it's good. This is a good world, and now it is, it's fractured, it's broken. It is not the way it ought to be. Nor are we as we ought to be. But the plan of God is the redemption of the cosmos. So that the Bible concludes with Revelation 21 and 22 with a new heaven and a new earth. It is paradise restored, is that which has been broken, has been healed through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. I, I, I put it to you that you cannot read the Bible unless you see it's incredibly earthy and historical. The story in the Bible is of God's intervention in history. 
into a world, into space and time. So in order to, to preserve Noah on the earth, an, an ark has to be created. It, it, it's, it's about the earth. Abraham is promised, what? A portion of land. The, the people of God, because of the Exodus, are promised a land flowing with milk and honey. You can't read the book of Deuteronomy without seeing the detailed prescriptions of what you have to do on the earth. And of course, the exile is, is the people who long to go home to the land for which they are familiar. And when Jesus comes, his intention is that we will communicate the gospel all over the world. All authority has been given to him in heaven and earth, so you go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is cosmic, you see, so that the meek will inherit the land. In Hebrew and Greek, the word for land on earth is exactly the same. We need to articulate this in our gospel, otherwise we, we degenerate into a form of Gnosticism. There is also a challenge for the church, of, of particularly those of liberal theological persuasion, and this has been expressed particularly by some Belgian Catholic theologians, that, 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 that God can be incarnate in different ways. He's come among us, yes, in Jesus, but also in Krishna or in, in Buddha. Well, this is Gnostic, you see. I, I want to tell you one of the most brilliant responses to this. Uh, it was written by, as he was, Cardinal Ratzinger at the time, became Pope Benedict, in a document called uh, Dominus Yesus. I don't know how often the Pope is quoted in Hamilton Road these days, but I... <laughs> this may be the last time. The, uh... <laughs> but, but I think this is, this is heartwarming and stirring. He says in contemporary theological reflection, there often emerges an approach to Jesus of Nazareth that considers him a particular finite historical figure who reveals the divine not in an exclusive way, but in a way complementary with other revelatory and salvific figures. More concretely for some, Jesus would be one of the many faces which the Logos has assumed in the course of time to communicate with humanity in a saving way. These theses are in profound conflict with the historic Christian faith. The doctrine a faith must be firmly believed which proclaims that Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, and he alone is the Son and the Word of the Father. The Word which was in the beginning with God is the same as he who became flesh in Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. The whole fullness of divinity dwells in bodily form. He is the only begotten of the Father who is in the bosom of the Father, his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile all things through himself on earth and in the heavens, making peace by the blood of the cross. Good stuff from a pope. Let me tell you. 
That is great stuff. That is the historic faith upon which we stand. Let me specifically refer to elements of Gnosticism finally, and, and then we'll turn to the consequences of this view for our behavior. It's present, you see, in any thesis that, that would seek to argue that the world is essentially evil. It's essentially perverse. It is bad. And redemption doesn't come from God. We, we ourselves need to redeem it. So that various ideologies that, that emerge within different cultures practice this. Now, within our Western society, sometimes will be simply by, by politicians who are in the know, an elite few who will tell us that what we need, perhaps, is to take certain action to maximize our human freedom. Or in Marxism, what is required, this is the whole Marxist thesis, you see, to have a communal ownership of wealth. Or in nationalism, the liberation of our nation from foreign rule. It has at its roots this belief that where we are, how we're living, how we function is in that which is essentially broken. It is not because we have rebelled. It's not because it is under judgment. It is because it is essentially evil. Let, let, let me just quote to you what I found a letter in the, in the London Times just last week from... Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, who's a professor, a very famous professor of New Testament in, in St. Andrews. I like to call him Tom Wright because when I was British chairman of the Theological Students Fellowship, Tom was one of my boys. <laughs> I met him, he didn't even know who I was. Um, but he's a wonderful, wonderful writer, particularly with regard things which are to come. And, and in the letter he wrote about the whole issue of gender identity. This is a major issue for us. Listen to this. The confusion about gender identity is a modern and now internet fuel form of the ancient philosophy of Gnosticism. The Gnostic, one who knows, has discovered the secret of who I really am behind the deceptive outward appearance in a phrase, the ungainly, boring, fleshly one. And then he says, this involves denying the goodness or even the ultimate reality of the natural world. Nature, however, tends to strike back with the likely victims in this case being vulnerable and impressionable youngsters who as confused adults will pay the price for their elders' fashionable fantasies. Gnosticism is present among us in the church and in the state. It confronts what we believe in terms of what we think about Jesus, but it also affects how we behave, profoundly how we behave. Turn to the text of Scripture again. Verse 5. 
This is the message, says John, we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This Gnosticism, you see, profoundly affects how people behave and how they understand the reality of sin. The, these proto-Gnostics, as I've called them, had a twofold slogan. We have fellowship with the divine. We truly know God in a way that you don't know God. And we are not morally responsible because it is what is inherently evil is the problem, not us. We are not accountable. I, I'm amazed how, how even those who claim to believe in Jesus have denigrated the importance of ethical behavior and, and how we speak and how we behave. I, I have a son who's a professional musician. He's working in the theater in Minneapolis. And when he was younger, he used to get me to watch with him the MTV Awards. Now, many of you are looking at me and thinking, I have no idea what the MTV Awards are. That's a reflection of your age. The MTV Awards are the music awards that are given to those who are successful in the music industry. And uh, usually about one o'clock in the morning, these things came on, and that's why you probably have never seen them. And these people would come on and they would receive their awards with great elation, and they would you know, thank their manager and their mother and their parents. And, and then they would say, having sung songs that were morally degenerate, that were sexually dubious, then they would say, I want to thank Jesus, all at the same time. Well, this is what was happening with regard to these characters. Uh, look how he handles this, how John responds to this. He uses what was the favorite metaphor of the Gnostics, light, because they claim to be enlightened. Now, what he does is he says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. For those of you involved in mission, I, I think it's important to realize the, the, the extraordinary giftedness that many of the apostles had in terms of finding a point of contact, of building bridges for the purpose of mission. Uh, for example, when, 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 when John when was writing the Gospels, there was the Greek notion that the logos was that which held together all of reality, the reason that was inherent within our, our, our world. 
Well, he could have confronted that and sought to demonstrate that this is erroneous and false, but, but what he does instead is he uses the concept Logos, and he says, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He finds that and uses it as a point of contact. Well, the Apostle Paul, of course, does the same in Athens. He's heartbroken when he sees these idols, temples to gods. He's distraught. But he, he doesn't follow the sort of ultra-Protestant line of organizing a protest march outside to have it closed down. What he does is he sees that there is a temple to an unknown god. And he builds a bridge. He quotes the Athenian poet. In him we live and have our being. And, and, and he finds this, this continuity. So he, here is he doing it again. Light, light was the supreme motif and metaphor for the Gnostics. So he, he says, God is light, and they're nodding. Yeah, yeah. In him there is no darkness at all. But John, of course, fills it with the light of the gospel. To, to say that God is light and, and you perform what is morally perverse is to live the life of one who is in darkness because light exposes those area of brokenness that need to be restored. It, it, it means, by implication, he's saying to the Gnostics, you cannot know the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You cannot know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a sham. And their second claim was that they were not morally responsible. If you say you have no sin, that's in the singular. It's rather like the concept of original sin. They, they didn't have it. It was removed from them, either eradicated or taken from them. And therefore, they are not responsible. Now, many people have said this is very appealing to people in the Republic of Ireland if you've been raised in what they call Catholic guilt. Also very appealing to those in the north of Ireland who've been raised in evangelical guilt. You know what I mean by that. You know, people judge and assess how great a sermon is by how awful you feel afterwards. If someone beats you, hammers you, whips you, you know, from the word of God, you know. This is a true story. I, when I was a young minister here, I remember clearly, I don't know what I preached on, but a woman met me at the door and said, Travis, that was a great sermon. I feel really terrible. <laughs> if, if, if you have guilt, you understand that. And, and these guys were saying, well, look, we're not responsible. Well, that's what we do today, isn't it? We say it's because of our genes, because of our social conditioning. It's because of what we've eaten. Remember that famous Twinkie case in the United States? I love this story. I'm, I'm going to stop soon, but I love this story. It's the Twinkie case where, where a guy who lost his job in, in, in San Francisco, and he went in and he shot dead the mayor. And his defense in court was that he'd eaten too many Twinkies. Now, you may not know what a Twinkie is, but it's, it's an awful dessert that people eat in the United States of America. It's full of sugars and ease and all sorts of awful things. And the, his defense lawyer claimed that it addled his brain, and therefore he was not responsible. Well, he got off. He was released. Listen to this poem. 
by Anna Russell, I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blacked my husband's eye. He led me on a downy couch to see what he could find, and here's what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mummy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father's kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer from kleptomania. At three, I had a feeling of ambivalence towards my brothers, and so it follows naturally. I poisoned all my lovers. But I am happy now. I've learned the lesson this has taught. Everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. And John says to these guys, you must be joking. Wise up. It's a lie. You are deceiving yourselves. But if we confess our sins. Well, we say we confess our sins, but I've been married long enough to know that when I say I'm sorry, I'm not really sorry sometimes. What I really mean is let's get over this. I've, you know, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I'm sorry. You know, you, all the women are nodding. Oh, yes. They've heard this. But you see, if you truly confess, what you do is you identify with the pain of the person you have hurt. That, that is why when we confess in the presence of God, there are often tears, because we enter into the pain of God that we have created. If we confess our sins, he washes our conscience clean. It's never mentioned again. And he, John says he does it on two grounds. And the first is the obvious one, is that God is faithful. He's faithful to what he's promised. He's promised that he will remember our sins no more as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. And when God says it, he means it. He's not fickle. He's reliable. You can stake your life on him. If he's promised it, your conscience will be clean. But a more unlikely reason is not just because he is faithful, but because he is just, John says. You would have thought at this point he would say because he's loving, because as we will discover, first John is all about God is love, that he forgives us because he's loving. No, no, he forgives us because he's just, which seems really odd, does it not? Because to quote the old bard, Shakespeare, if justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us would see salvation. But what he does, you see, he John introduces the word paraclete. It's a word he uses with regard to the Holy Spirit in his Gospels, but now he applies it specifically to Jesus. A paraclete is really like a queen's council or a state council. He's a barrister or she who is arguing your case, particularly in, in, in a court-martial. And so the picture that John creates is, is of being, us being brought as those who have failed, who have sinned, who are responsible for this broken world in which we live. And, and we come before the God who has created us. And Jesus is our paraclete. And, and the, the question is, how do you plead? Well, the answer is guilty. But Jesus said, I have made atonement for their sins. A.G. Eyre, um, 
An atheist philosopher calls the Christian teaching on sin and atonement intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. If you say that, I think you have to understand that you do not appreciate how difficult forgiveness is. Forgiveness, C.S. Lewis, I think, said, and I can't quote it exactly, that forgiveness seems a fine thing as long as you don't have to do it. Because when you practice forgiveness, you, you are you're hurt, you're angry, you're in pain, you are morally outraged, you are confronted with injustice. If your spouse has betrayed you, if they've had an affair, you are angry, justifiably angry. If one of your family have been murdered, how difficult is it to forgive? It is almost impossible to forgive. I, I had the honor to speak at the 20th anniversary of the Enniskillen bombing, and I had before me those who had practiced forgiveness, those who could not forgive because it was so painful, and those who would not forgive because it was an insult to their friends and the members of their family who had been butchered on that occasion. It is so difficult to forgive. If it is difficult for us, it is so difficult for God. You see, when you practice forgiveness, what happens is the miracle of mercy takes place. You suddenly feel compassion towards a person who initially you feel ought to suffer the consequences for what they've done. And then there is an act of substitution. You yourself choose to embrace the pain that you want that other person to experience and to endure, and you forgive them. Well, here is the God of heaven who has come among us in flesh and blood and has died for us, the just for the unjust, so that our sins might be forgiven. That's why we call it amazing grace. And then John adds, but not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Which, of course, you can understand rightly that what Christ has done for us in terms of his atonement is sufficient for all that. If all repented and all believed, all would be saved. But, but John is saying something more in addressing what the Gnostics were arguing. He was saying the world is not inherently evil. We are responsible. It is our rebellion that has caused this broken, vitiated world in which we live. We are responsible. But Christ has died not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that this world, which is broken environmentally, ecologically, economically, relationally, socially. There is sufficient for the forgiveness of the sins of the whole world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him 
should not perish, but have everlasting life. We're inclined to stop there, but John does not. He continues, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, the world in its organic completeness, but that the world through him should be saved. Brothers and sisters, I can say to you this morning, as, as Paul said to King Agrippa in the Acts of the Apostles, this is not something done in a corner. This is big. This is huge. That is why we are participants in a world mission. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence among us, for speaking your word. Thank you for bringing us back to the greatness of Christ and what you have done through him for us and for our salvation, but not for ours only. Make us a joyful and thankful people who do not leave this place feeling miserable, but with the joy of the gospel in their hearts. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.